Okay, so I received a really special invitation for us and I need your help. We got something from the International Olympic Committee and they want us to award three gold medals. So the three categories and we're only giving gold medals are pet care, friendship, and crisis management. So let's start with pet care. Of the following three girls, who are you giving the gold? Molly, Cecile, or Josefina? Oh my God. Uh, wow. I'm going to give it to Josefina. Um, Sombrita, never forget. I still think about you, girl. Molly's getting not even the bronze. She's an embarrassment. <laughs> There's no bronze. Care. There's no bronze. Okay. For friendship, you have to choose between Addie, Kirsten, and Marie Grace. And whether their friends are still alive is not a determining factor. <laughs> Um, I'm giving Addie the gold. No question. Fantastic. Our final category of crisis management, you have to choose between Caroline, Kaya, or Samantha. Hmm. Wow, that's hard. Um, I think I actually want to give it to Kirsten because I know she's not a nominee, but I do like <laughs> her chaos, and I do think it would bring something to the table. That's fair. That's fair. We can switch categories. That works. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison, still going for the gold or the silver or whatever the committee chooses to give to me. Oh, wow. That's it's that's the way to get into the Olympics, which I, <laughs> I know that you're not watching, but these Olympics are some of the bleakest games these eyes have seen. And yes. I'm an Olympics person. I will watch even though it's incredibly fraught. Like the Olympics to me are both mean like nothing and everything. It's like mm. this is a meaningless prize. And yet it's like I defy anyone to watch someone win a gold medal, be on the podium and they're playing the anthem for you. And it's like, I choke up. I have nothing to do with this. And I'm choking up. So that works for you in a way that, say, the national anthem in just another context does not. Probably, yeah. I mean, and honestly, to me, the reason I really like the Olympics is that it's just like the craziness of the storylines. And, you know, to me, I really love figure skating and ice dancing because I love seeing what costumes people pick and what song choices they go with and the whole aesthetic that they build, which is mostly insane and ridiculous. And some of these people should be booted from the games, <laughs> which I know is a tender topic to bring up because the Russian Olympic Committee should be booted anyway, because the adults involved, you know, have obviously like there's been incredible mismanagement. There's a lot of controversial decisions that have come down that I do not agree with that I think reveal how the Olympics are bad on race and nationalism and a whole host of other things. However, the real pop culture criminals at this Olympics are the following. I watched a couple dance two nights ago to the Lion King, Allison, Ooh. a medley of the Lion King. And, you know, it, it was a team from Great Britain and Johnny Weir totally seriously was like, you know, my objection to this performance is that they didn't really communicate Timba, Timba or Pumbaa. Like, I couldn't feel Pumbaa from this. Like, they could have just been dancing to anything. And it's like, how about we not bring <laughs> Lion King into the game, sir? But, you know, I'm someone who's like alive with contradiction when it comes to these choices because someone else, a different couple, did a medley to Janet Jackson the daring day before the Super Bowl, and they are my new heroes. It was insane. It was uncalled for, and yet I was very here for it. I hope, you know, they get, like, maybe that's their career high. I don't know. And last but not least, a member of Team <laughs> Russia did a one-man performance to a medley of Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh. And he wore as a costume a shirt that appeared to have a crown of thorns around the collar. I mean, it's just the mind reels. I mean, I could keep going on about this, but if you're interested in hearing us discuss figure skating, which is a deep love for us both, please check out our Patreon this month where we will be discussing Michelle Kwan's autobiography from when she was 17. About which, I'll just say this. A lot. Everyone know. else in the figure skating world has moved on. I'm still in Nagano. I'll just say that. 
We're all still in Nagano. I mean, I'm still in Nagano. I think Michelle might still be in Nagano. Oh, Michelle, like Michelle, we hope gets to Belize. But I mean, yeah, <sighs> Ambassador Kwan, I hope this is like the the unlocks kind of some healing for you. I don't want you to be like Tanya Harding, who we know is still in Lillehammer 1994. She's still skating over to the judges being like, my shoelace broke. So I, you know, that's why things are happening here. You don't want that for her, but this book, that book is dark. Did you know that Karen Kwan is actually in our Patreon at the $10 level? Oh my God. Oh my God. The only way to find out if that's true is to listen, but you know, wow. well, We'll, we we'll we did there. actually read an American Girl book for this week. We read Meet Cecile, which was very exciting. It was. I mean, this whole series is a group of firsts for us because, you know, obviously it's two American girls sharing a series, sharing the same setting. And this, what is book two in the series is actually basically the events of book one, but from Cecile's perspective. And we see obviously Mm. like other events we didn't see in Marie Grace's perspective. We actually have some of the same exact scenes as you're saying. And we also get just a little bit more backstory. So we start in early January with what's going on with Cecile. What is she looking forward to? And then we get the same scene as we got in Meet Marie Grace at Madame Ocean's from Cecile's perspective. So that is something that we have really never encountered before in a supplemental text and anything else. So they really are trying something quite different with this book. Yeah, that's definitely true. It's like this book was like as um, Yogi Berra would say, deja vu all over again. Yes. Yes, it was. Do we dare go back to 2011? I mean, let's do it. If we could turn back time, take us to 2011. (laughs) Not an Olympic year, but uh, close enough. We wish. We wish. Yeah, so we meet Sociole, and this book came out in 2011, but we're still in the January-February period of 1853. And this book is written by a different author. So this is by Denise um, Lewis-Patrick, who is actually from Louisiana. That's something we talked about with Meet Marie Grace, that the author was not from that part of the country. Right. So this is like a really interesting and important sort of edit. Yeah. And I'm going to read the publisher's description, but something to know about, I'm going to call her, uh, you know, our associate, Denise. I don't want to say friend. I don't want to be presumptuous. Not yet. But she, <laughs> she has written a lot of books. And most recently, she wrote the McKenna book under the World by Us series, She's been putting out books since we were kids, and she's most notably the author of Melody, No Ordinary Sound. So she's been around the American Girl block. Into it, extremely into it. So I'll give us kind of that background. Um, Cecile Ray can't wait for Mardi Gras, the dazzling season of parties and costume balls in New Orleans. For the grandest event of all, the children's ball, Cecile is determined to come up with a fantastic costume like no other. Everyone will notice her. And after Mardi Gras, Cecile's beloved brother, Armand, will finally come home after two long years in faraway France. But Mardi Gras season turns out to be even more exciting than Cecile expects when she meets a new girl named Marie Grace Gardner. Together, they form an unlikely friendship, dot, 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 and share a daring adventure. Wild ride. I want to quote Rainbow Mom, who bravely actually went right on the American Girl website to lead a review. These books are amazing and teaches you even in hard times, you will get through it. Thanks, Rainbow Mom. Wow. Okay. I mean, I guess that's true. Um, I want to start with who I think is the star of this book. Um, can I guess? Or I wanted to hear who you say. I'll, I wonder if I know who you're going to say. No, you guess. You guess. Grand, grand Pere. <laughs> Can't so say Grandpa? I, Not grandpa. I wish it was grandpa. I think the one that we really don't want to sleep on in this book, based on everything we've read in American Girl, and part of why I had you evaluate the pet caretaking abilities, I think we don't want to sleep on the parrot in this book. (laughs) That's No, hear me out. Okay, I'm listening. I want to talk a bit about this parrot because I think what's fascinating here is 
this author already would have heard about the reception and sort of controversies and praise for the Addie books by the time this came out and knew that people were really, really wanting a Black American girl who was not set in slavery. And so that's obviously a huge challenge, but it is fascinating to me that she chooses such a similar pet as the pet that Addie connects with when she becomes a free girl. Um, yeah, I do think that's really interesting. And also that it's like, you know, birds obviously have the connotation of freedom and Cecile is, is born free, but it's interesting that then the parrot becomes inspiration for, like, she jokingly is like, I want to dress as a parrot for the Mardi Gras ball. Yes. Everyone's like, LOL. Cool. Yeah, right. So this parrot in like the opening scene of the book literally has ruffled feathers and squawks at her and says, not even a queen, not even a queen. When we talk about how um, the last name Ray means king, they're kind of doing a lot of exposition there. And she says, but I'm Cecile of New Orleans, not a king, not even a queen. And the parrot kind of picks that up. I really do feel like for American Girl fans, this is like an interesting kind of throwback because that was a brilliant kind of play when Addie meets the beautiful golden bird who's kind of in the cage but not of the cage and then to open this book with something very similar we know that the pets that these girls get are not incidental and are not on the whim of the authors like everything is planned yeah I think that's a really good point and I think it's also meaningful that there's never a cage that we see for Mm. this bird it's free flying all over Cecile's house, which sidebar would terrify me. Like, actually, yeah. that's what I took from this scene. I was like, I don't want a bird flying around my house, landing on me at will. No thanks. Or reminding me of snippets of things I've said. No thank you. No, and we kind of open and we learn that Cecile is very worldly because the family is talking about how they have a Christmas tree because Queen Victoria has a Christmas tree. And within kind of the first few pages, I think in a way that's done very different from the Marie Grace books, we get a sense that they are cosmopolitan, like that they think Mm. of themselves and they are worldly people without someone saying, New Orleans is different. Everyone here is worldly. Like that is kind of laid out within two pages in a very elegant way. Yeah, I think so. Like even just, I think there's a great emphasis in this book and in the series on material culture in a way that I'm picking Mm. up on more than some of the other series. And I think it does a lot of work for both authors because you can kind of see, I think in Marie Grace's books, like the ways that she's self-conscious about what her family does and does not have. And with Cecile, it's really showing, as you're saying, how cosmopolitan they are but also how affluent, not in a showy way, but just in like having quality things. They have a lot of, you know, consumer goods in their house. Also the fact that, you know, we should talk about like just how many of these books deal with loss and absence of people. Like there are these constant plot lines of like, who's not here? And like talking about that person as a way to kind of get basic information out. But We learn that both her mother and her father work and that her mother basically has passive income in the form of inherited estates or like inherited property and that her father is extremely talented. Her brother is extremely talented. The tension between Armand and Uncle Luke is already growing for me. (laughs) What do you mean? I just feel it. I feel like part of why we are led to believe that these two young girls are becoming friends is because Luke and Armand are meant to be together. Oh my God, really? Oh my, yes. How do you not see this? They're two like men of the world. Like uncle is going to drive a steamboat straight to Armand's heart. He's like, I know you are just getting off the boat at the end of meet Cecile, but he's like, I'm here now. Wow, is this like internalized homophobia coming out that I didn't see this? This is fascinating. I mean... It feels obvious to me. Okay, but fair enough. I mean, I love this for you. I love this. Like, please, American Girl, make this movie. I'm so ready for like a red, white, and royal blue, but having this be the plot line instead. Um, If anyone's read that book. Yeah, I mean... It's kind of fat. Like, who the he- who is Armand? Like, that's the 
like he is the face that launches a thousand ships and perhaps like a steamboat steamship in your case uh, according to your theory but like who is this man and there's something that's so fascinating about like how obsessed Cecile is with her absent brother but it's manifesting mm. in like I have nothing to say to him or like I because her mom is like you need to write to him every week which sidebar how much are we spending on postage or expecting our mom to spend like that's a lot and also it's like i'm sorry but what does cecile have to say like every on a weekly basis as a nine-year-old like i don't know i would be like cecile let's like take it to a once a month place <laughs> like let's see how much content you're putting together and then we'll kind of reevaluate this but she's kind of like, I don't know what to write to him. I don't know what to say. And it's sort of fascinating that in a period when New Orleans is really cracking down on or trying to severely limit how many free black people can live in Louisiana and, and specifically New Orleans, that we don't get this sort of absent figure of like a black family member who has been sold away from the family, like in an enslaved family situation, a la Addie. And instead, you have this extremely accomplished, affluent family where he gets to go to Paris to develop his skills as a stone worker or sculptor to work in what we we're told is the father's thriving business. And to think that there's only about a generation of difference between him and, say, members of the Jefferson Hemings family, right? right. Who were brought to Paris under very different circumstances. But I think something that this book that I really, really appreciate opens up is the range of experiences that Black workers who are free or enslaved are having. We learn about people working close to where the ships are landing. We're learning about what they're doing. Her father is this highly skilled and wealthy artisan. Her brother is on the path to becoming an artist or artisan. And we meet people, right, who are running their own businesses. It's really a very different thing. But all along, it's made very clear that Cecile is of a much higher class even than Marie Grace. Like, they are not peers by class at all. And that is brought out in the way that, you know, this character is able to write a letter in a way and is expected to do that. Or that she doesn't even go down the street unattended because of her class. Right. I mean, there's a really interesting scene where... Um, Cecile is going out for an impromptu sweet treat with Grandpa, my favorite character. Love you, Grandpa. (laughs) And Grandpa, in my imagination, was a sailor during the War of 1812 and perhaps saw Caroline. Like, that could happen in my head. And I love this guy because he's like, yeah, it was crazy. Like, you know, I'm in a ship and I'm climbing up the mast and... I hear a splash and I dropped my hammer in the ocean. And it's like, what was your life, sir? Like, I don't understand what I can't make heads or tails of what this man has or has not seen. But I love his just like, you know, I love his vibe. I love how warm he is with Cecile and he takes her out for pralines, which now I'm like, how do we get pralines? And when she's leaving for this impromptu outing, the white maid is basically chasing after her, like dressing her because she's like, Mm. no, it's muddy on the sidewalk. You need your boots. You can't wear your silk slippers out there. And it's just sort of like that's the sign of a truly affluent person is that they literally don't think about common sense things or like protecting what little articles of clothing they have or precious articles of clothing. I mean, she would have walked out on a muddy sidewalk in these silk slippers, which to me is like big time flex of, you know, just like always being used to a certain level of wealth. Yeah. And you can really see kind of the affection that is shared between her and her grandfather. I really love the writing in this book. There is this line, Cecile gasped and her eyes flew wide open. The parrot sputtered on his stand in the corner and flapped his wings noisily. My hammer fell into the sea instead of me. And they're just like laughing and having a great time. And then they're going out to candy. And it's like, is grandpa available for consults and visits? Like grandpa. Yeah. Like, can we be his pen pal? Like he seems so fun. And is he the, do you think he's the mother's father or is he the father's father? 
That's interesting because one thing that we know about her mother is that she is taking care of properties that have um, come to her. And we also have her sister living with them, which is what leads me to believe that um, it's patrilineal, that it's her father's father, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, but maybe yes, that make that's what I was assuming too because and I do think you know we kind you've made this point but I think it's worth repeating that this is the first Chiron in an American Girl book I have ever seen that describes the mother as a businesswoman, not yeah. the father. I mean he's gets he gets I think described in terms of his profession as well. I have to double check this, but yes, Cecile's father, a warm, gentle man, and a successful sculptor. Maman, Cecile's mother, who is firm but kind and is a good businesswoman. That was amazing to me. Yeah, and there's an interesting thing, too, of, like, we learn a little bit more about the family. Um, her aunt is, like, encouraging her to go out and to, like, kind of visit these other older people. It's an intergenerational living situation in that, like, the aunt is there. Her cousin is there. They're feeling the absence of the brother. But ultimately, this is a family that has really an experience that was precious and rare for Black families in the mid-19th century, which is they are together mostly by choice, and the absence that is there is also their choice. Yes, that's true. And the sense of mourning that goes on for Armand is so, like, sincere and intense. But then you have to stop yourself and say, like, but this is a huge privilege. Like, they sent him mm. away so that he could have this amazing privilege like even among white aspiring artists in this period very few could afford to go abroad to learn from you know masterworks and go around the louvre and and copy classical works or train with a professional artist like i don't really know and we're not told what exactly armand was doing in paris which is kind of another whole story well as it turns out he's making a doll that looks like his sister so uh, yeah that's yeah. what that's what he's doing. What he was sent to do is less clear, but we get some nice scenes with the family where they're kind of connecting and talking with each other. Of course, the bird is like constantly flying around, kind of creating atmosphere. I'm scared. But it's striking that they chose to include um, a servant who is from a similar background to the family and then a servant who has immigrated to the United States. And it's interesting that they chose to do that because this book is set just one year before Kirsten. And it's like, if you were reading these all in succession, they are starting to build out a broader world of the United States in the 1850s. Like, if you weren't in a connected family like Kirsten's where you could go out and take land, you were far more likely to end up in a household maybe not a free black household, but to end up more like the woman in this book. Yeah, totally. And I think something that's interesting about the inclusion of Ellen, the white Irish immigrant maid in the book is that on the one hand, she's upending your expectations about race that you may have brought to this book. Like in other words, maybe you didn't mm. expect for there to be a white maid for a free black affluent family. But that likely happened. And maybe you didn't expect to see free black people enslave other black people. But we see that in this book, too. And we can circle back to that. But I think the inclusion of the Irish immigrant is also sort of like a canary in the coal mine. Not to make another bird reference, but here we go. Because in this period, more people from Germany and Ireland are immigrating into the United States and specifically into Louisiana and they're the population that are actually going to push free black laborers out of certain professions or out of certain jobs because they're willing to actually work for much less money, the, the immigrant groups coming in. And they have their privilege of whiteness, even though a lot of folks with that heritage like to read um, uh, you know, like these books that say like when the Irish, how the Irish became white and all this stuff, like yes, in caricature, they were perceived as non-white, but in practice, they were able to actually dislocate a lot of free black people from various occupations in this period. So Ellen may not read as empowered and she may not feel that in her life, but she's part of a group that is going to rob a lot of people of their power. I also really, really was like taken by the scene. I really appreciated it in the chapter called Free People of Color. 
where we find Cecile with her grandfather, and it is confirmed in here that he is a Ray, so it would be her father's father, uh, presumably. And oh, okay. so there is a scene where they're about to get pralines, and they're kind of chatting with the shopkeeper. And we've learned at this point that her grandfather is an elder, right? Like he's an older man, he's a respected man in the community. And he says, excuse me, there are these two uh, white men in the shop. And they respond and they call him boy and tell him, watch where you're going. And and they're intending to like disrespect him. And the shopkeeper kind of intercedes on page 25. And these men kind of thinking that they're going to get like agreement from the shopkeepers say, these French don't teach their slaves enough respect. I have decided that one of these friends is Patrick O'Toole from okay. Josefina Saves the Day. And Got he's it. now a full-time trader who has gotten into the steamboat trade. And wow. they're having this this thing that plays out like over and over and you hear about it into the civil rights movement and through today. There's like a shifting in the store and one of the men says, you don't step in front of me. And part of this is about the men like trying to, the white men trying to cut him down to size by calling him a boy and by basically saying, you don't take up any space here. Like you are not allowed to take up any space here. Mm. Much like basically pushing someone off a sidewalk, right? By mm. by not allowing any space. Um, and then you have Cecile stepping up and explaining, I like Cecile so much more in this book. Like, if we remember when she's around Marie Grace, she kind of shrugs and she seems a little bit sort of like aloof. Mm. Here, when we're in her sort of interior self, she explains to them, like, we're free people of color. You don't treat us this way. I'm like, I wonder how intentional that was or if that's really just the difference between a Black author writing a Black character versus a white author writing a Black character. Hmm, that's a really good question. I these wonder. are not the same Cecile. Like, can we be serious here? Like, these yeah. are different girls to me. Like, Cecile literally shrugs in the other book. She's like, that's the way it is. Sometimes people are treated separate but equal. And you're like, um, uh, <laughs> cut to this book. It's a very, very different Cecile. Yeah, and actually, it's an inversion of the two girls in this book because when she sees Marie Grace in the marketplace, which we saw in book one, where Marie Grace basically orders a sidewalk because she doesn't have a handle on her French and Cecile has to help her. And there is a moment in this book where we kind of get inside Cecile's head and she's like, huh, they have some exchange that makes Cecile reevaluate Marie Grace. And she's like, I thought basically she was kind of passive, but it seems like she has some moxie. I'm paraphrasing. And and she sort of reevaluates Marie Grace, whereas like, in book one, as you're saying, you're supposed to almost think about Cecile that way. But it's interesting and I think more believable in this book for it to be inverted. Yes. We also get this very like, I think it's important sometimes. I think subtlety goes really far in these books. Like I think kind of this like beautiful visual of this home with this parrot squawking around that's very human. You've got all these different people living together. The way that that scene ends is we get grandfather kind of offering some perspective. And this is, they circle back to this in the peak into the past, this idea that the city is changing. Mm. Um, He says, you know, when he met grandma years ago, New Orleans was French, African, and Spanish. People have been moving to our city from all over the United States. And Cecile says the Americans, and they like definitely delineate themselves from the rest of the Americans. I was like, wow, I really want to meet Cecile in April 1861. Uh, Yeah, same. It is is sort of haunting to hear that exchange and know what's coming and know the characters don't know what's coming as we meet them in this moment. And it is haunting to know that this is this book is actually comfortable showing in a really honest way a declension narrative or like a lack mm. of progress for black people. I just want to say as a quick aside, I don't know if you caught this or how you feel about this, but don't you think that guy on twenty page 27 looks like Ted Cruz? The guy on the right? Yes. Yeah. Just yeah. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah. yes. The other one could be Patrick O'Toole for... I'm willing to believe that the uh, that guy looks like Ted Cruz. Would love to speak to the illustrator. What were your thoughts, ma'am? But 
You know, it's just, it is hard to read this book because of course we know what's going on. And I actually want to send you this link in the chat. I was looking around and trying to just find some numbers and I found this database from a project called Peoples of the Historical Slave Trade, which we can put in our episode notes for everybody, but it lets you, it actually lets you look at a database of um, the Free Blacks database of New Orleans in mm. 1840 to 1860. And I don't know if that link opens for you, but what's nice is they sort it for you so you can see. So everyone who was a free Black person in New Orleans had to have some identification on them proving that they were not an enslaved person. So they, if they were stopped on the street, as we've seen in these books, they could um, produce some proof of their freedom. And this, so this database is pulled from those records, everyone who had to register with the city um, in the 1840s. So you can see a breakdown of like all the different feel like jobs people did um, and understandings of race, like these scientific to their time understandings of race, which we don't um, honor now. So it's kind of an interesting project. I will say something that I think made the complexity of the city, like obviously for reasons like to explain to children, like this, this part of the United States was, you know, like still within grandpa's lifetime that that Louisiana (laughs) purchase took place, right? Like you need that exposition sometimes. I think maybe one of the better scenes that we have read in any American girl books is towards the end of secrets and promises where Cecile learns that her brother is coming back and she and grandpa go down and they're actually waiting to meet him. It, I honestly think it's one of the most beautifully rendered scenes. Cecile has singing lessons. She's not really putting the time in. We're kind of getting the hint that maybe she's not the best singer. She goes down and, and basically sort of gets like chills listening to these workers singing in tune. Mm-hmm. And she asks, what are they singing? Um, and she basically has to shout to be heard. And Grandpa, having this experience of being a sailor, explains. And they're singing way over the water. And they're, they're having this kind of moment. And it says, Cecile felt tingly all over. She thought about the words. Probably some of the men were slaves. And we get this like whole other context. Like we know that her grandfather worked on the water. She's taking singing lessons. This to me is like what makes this book artful in a way that some other children's books just just maybe don't hit for me. That is such a a really like complex topic that she has basically put into this child's brain so well. Yeah, I, I, it's nice to see, I like a moment in these books when you see one of the American girls like have a revelation, like a personal revelation in real time and you're sort of in their head with them and the other people in their world are not. So even though grandpa is explaining, you know, the song they're singing and how this all works, like we're in her head with her. She's trying to put in conversation like her singing teacher and these enslaved people that she's watching and like wondering if they they're singing about, you know, loved ones that they're far away from. And it is sort of like you see her mind getting blown or like just trying to understand how all of these things fit together in her own universe. Yeah. And the fact that honestly, the least interesting part of this book to me was her meeting Marie Grace, not just because we get a scene we've already had from a different perspective, but I think more generally, I am so interested in Cecile. I really want a world where we read six books about her. I totally agree. That was my takeaway from this book because I was actually really frustrated when Marie Grace would pop in because it was like, okay, it's not the time for you. Like we're trying to do a bunch of other stuff. Like I'm going out with grandpa to get pralines. Like we're going to singing lessons that we clearly have not prepared for because I think we actually, Cecile is, is meant for a life on the stage, which is like another yes. whole conversation. But you know, like when she's walking down the street, street with grandpa and he basically, they see black free black people who are walking with people they enslave carrying boxes for them or bags from shopping. And he says, like, I could never own another person. And, you know, so it's like they're they're asking you to think about the fact that, you know, New Orleans in this period has 
free black people who are enslaving other black people and like how can they make sense of that or just maybe telling you maybe you're learning that that even happened for the first time and there's it's such rich stuff like she has so much going on in her world like thinking about Armand and her family and this and that so then when Marie Grace pops in you're like can you go away for a second like I think (laughs) it is stunning that for Marie Grace in book one Cecile looms very large in her mind all the time. Like she's thinking yes. about Cecile. She's wondering what she's up to, when she's going to see her next. Cecile's life is so full and busy that it's kind of like she runs into Marie Grace and is like, oh, you exist. <laughs> Forgot about you. Like, yeah, good to see you. What's going on? But it's not like she's sort of friendship pining for Marie Grace. Okay. Is this a subtle commentary on white women who have black acquaintances and they call them friends and black women who have white acquaintances that they do not call friends <laughs> could be absolutely I, could be i find it also really interesting like the you mentioned that Cecile wants a life on the stage there's a sonnet that she performs for her family I felt this really hard because I think all of us have been there where whether it's doing a handstand or it's doing something and you're like, everyone is going to be blown away by this performance (laughs) and you're 10 or like nine and a half. And let's face it, they're really not. But she's getting some feedback and she has only memorized one part of the sonnet. And I looked it up. It's Shakespearean and it's about dreaming and imagining a person that you miss being there with you. And I kind of love that this author is like giving her that because it's not something random. It's actually a work of art that this character is feeling very deeply by missing Armand and kind of dreaming about him, but not really knowing what his life is like. And a few pages later, that fear is really spoken aloud. And she says, you know, what if he's different? What if he's not who I remember? She would have last seen him when she was about eight years old. So she's kind of feeling that anxiety. And she has this moment where um, she says she felt like a spinning top, right? Like all these things are kind of changing. And to your point, Marie Grace is minor in that, but the reverse is not true for Marie Grace. Absolutely. I mean, I think it was the scholar Sarah McLaughlin who once said, I will remember you, but will you remember me? And that's deep because if you think about Cecile singing that to Armand, that's a very Mm. primal question. Like she's really wondering like, God, Armand's been in Paris. Like God only knows what experiences he's had or the sights he's seen. He could out cosmopolitan, his already extremely cosmopolitan family. And she's wondering like this person who's meant a great deal to her, will he have missed her in the same way that she's missing him? And can they grow together after growing up so separately for a few years? And with Marie Grace, admittedly, they they know each other in a very different context for a very brief amount of time. But she's basically like her. Like, I mean, that's the feeling to me. She's just like, uh, like you're cute. I guess we have fun when we hang when I see you. But I'm not, you know, thinking about you per se. I did not read this book as a child. I would have loved to have had this book because having the age gap that I do between me and my two older siblings. When my older brother and sister went away to college, I felt like they instantly became the coolest people to ever live and felt like I would never really like know how to hang with them again. And the anxiety of them leaving and coming back and wanting it to be the same. It's the not knowing, like it's not knowing if they're gonna come back different, if you have become different, right? And when you're younger, right? Just kind of wondering what their life has been like. And we don't really know what Armand has been up to. We know that he befriends a doll maker who makes a doll that looks like his sister. I have to hope he's also doing slightly more fun things in Paris, but it seems like that was a pretty big focus. I mean, yeah. I want to know what's in the crates. <laughs> he tells, like, Grandpa's oh. like, I'll get your stuff off the ship. And he's like, yeah, I also have two crates. Thanks, Grandpa. And it's like, okay, so big reveal. He pulls Cecile aside, and this is sort of wild. He's like, Cecile, you're nine years old. I'm going to tell you a secret. And it's like, 911, you should not entrust a major life <laughs> secret with a nine-year-old, but moving on. And he's like, yeah, I I know dad can't wait for me to come into the business and be a sculptor or stonemason. 
my dream now is to be a painter. And it's like, like, how's this going to go? And also, why are you telling Cecile this? Because the crates are full of paintings. And of what? You know what I mean? Ladies. Or men. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what Luke thinks of them. Um, But I think, too, it's like, what are these parents preparing for? Because... You know, Armand is coming home and he's coming in hot as an emerging painter on the scene, which sounds (laughs) great. But then Cecile is like, listen, like, I think there's a class thing going on here with her Shakespeare and her desire to act because the parents in certain settings are totally okay with it, but not in others where she's like, yeah, my teacher, my private tutor is is helping me memorize a Shakespearean sonnet. And he was like, you know, he's only let me learn like this very brief part of it so far. And she's so proud of this performance. But there's a feeling, even from her vocal coach, that's like, yeah, that's a nice thing to do at home. But, like, you would never do that professionally, would you? Right. Well, kind of the specter of being a woman of the stage, right? Like, this is a family that cares about propriety. They care about proper behavior. Now, listen, being an actress in that time, not always, I guess, proper behavior associated with that. No, but can you imagine, like, this would have been, honestly, the ultimate for me, like, to have a sibling come back. It's funny you talked about Lion King. My brother got to go on a trip to Paris when I was about this age, and he came back with um, a special glossy book about the Lion King film, but all in French. (laughs) I brought it to school and showed everyone this is really special and important stuff. Like, this is from Paris. None of you have ever seen this. My nope. brother oh just my brought God. it back. Wow. You will, like, no one could ever possibly understand what The Lion King was all about. No. And I will say this. Not, <laughs> I know what Marie Grace's message is. Cecile finally gets to reconnect with her brother. She's been missing him for close to two years. The family, like, she's just learned this bombshell from her brother. Marguerite Grace comes up to her and she says, I found a, and doesn't finish the sentence. Cecile's like, not now. You're going to meet the whole family. Do you know what it is that she found? I read ahead into the preview, so I do know. It's a person. It's a person. (laughs) She found a person. Like, she didn't find a loose-leaf piece of paper or a spare praline. She found a person. Cecile's kind of like, it's not the best time. And she's like, oh, no. Like, I totally, totally get it. I'm going to say this. We have seen a beautiful support network around Cecile. Marie Grace, her people need to up the ante. Okay, that housekeeper needs to get out of bed. Like, (laughs) this woman is perpetually napping or out for the night. She's like, excuse me, I must excuse myself. I'm off the clock. Mommy's going to bed. (laughs) And she's asleep. And what's crazy to me is I need to know Marie Grace's thought process in terms of, like, she's in crisis. She finds a person. We'll get into that in the next episode, I'm sure. And she sits down and thinks to herself, I'm going to write Cecile a note about this. Like, was her thought process that she would go to Cecile's door by herself and not be able to not be shown to Cecile? Like, Cecile might not receive her. Like, is there some sort of friendship insecurity there that, you know, perhaps she wouldn't be received? So she's like, "Okay, I'm just going to I would love to know, like, what this note said, where it's like, um, Like, I would love, did she write, like, Cecile, I found, like, a person, SOS, like, meet me outside, meet me at the farmer's market. Like, what was her plan? This is also, I will say, this is textbook American girl situation where a doll being acquired or given is treated with the same gravity as like life-changing events, like life and death events, birth of a child, death of a loved one. It's like the doll is as important. I really, really loved the final page where we get this illustration where Marie Grace is kind of hanging on and Cecile is like, yeah, I'm I'm kind of like, I've got to go. And she's holding on to the doll and we get this kind of internal monologue Inside, Cecile felt concerned for both of them, but also deep, warm happiness at the same time. I think she might be an Aquarius. 
Both of them trusted her. She smiled. Maybe Armand was right. She'd grown up. She felt braver and stronger than she felt before. No matter what happened, she knew she would keep their secrets. She was Cecile Amelie Ray, and she was ready for anything. Oh like, she's God. back to the beginning where she's like, maybe that parrot thought I wasn't a queen. Parrot was wrong. Oh, my God. You know, that Brene Brown or whoever saying that's like, you're only as sick as your secrets. Like, Cecile is coming into this <laughs> from a completely different perspective where she's like, people think I'm a grown up or like, they trust me because like everyone's putting their secrets on me. Like, this is awesome. Like, everything is amazing. And it's like. Is that amazing? I don't really know. Like, to me, it's like, this is a last resort or like a moment of desperation that you pull your nine-year-old sister aside and are like, I have something to tell you. You cannot tell anybody. Like, as a grown-up adult person, I just don't know that that's like the act of a person no. who's in a great headspace. And we've, as we've discussed, like Marie Grace, 100% has not planned at all. Like, she's just operating from emotion. Every adult in her life is either out on a medical call driving a steamboat or taking a nap at this stage of the game. And our looking back section like wants to give us some context for her life, right? And it's sort of saying like, yes, there were people who lived like the Rays. There were people who had this lifestyle. A thing that I find kind of baffling about this, and I think if I were to kind of pull anything out of this and say, never let this like kind of leave your your front of view, Cecile and any member of that family, and I think this was done really well in the sweet shop, are always kind of one white person's bad day away from a life-changing disaster. Do you know what I mean? Yes, 100%. Yes. Like that scene goes differently and she does not have a grandfather because that is what actually happened, not just in the South, but like throughout the country. Yeah, and actually, I really appreciated that perspective of the ball, of her attending the ball as well. Is like even after they switch and they have a dance at each other's ball, when she switches back, we're back in her head, and she it basically mm. hits her where she's like, "Wow, that really could have gone differently if because the mask falls off her face when she's yes. back, and she's like, "Oh my God, you know, if this mask had fallen off my face, this entire thing." could have gone really differently. And I actually thought that was a really important moment for us to kind of be with her as she has that revelation that basically, you know, she did something from instinct and it's sort of carefree in a sense, but she understands the stakes of it even as a nine-year-old person. And I also really liked that we get the line repeated of Cecile saying to the teacher when the teacher hooks up, um, Marie Grace with an invitation to the children's ball saying like, where's my invitation? Basically, like I've known you for longer, which is a very mm -hmm. human nine-year-old thing. And when Marie Grace is hit with the fact that they're segregated, she's like, well, why? And which is sort of like doe-eyed in a way that I don't really buy. But Cecile's response is like, it's always been that way. And mm -hmm. what I really appreciated about that is like in the, since our first episode aired of, of this series, I've heard from some folks who are from Louisiana or different areas and in the South saying basically it's always been that way has been the party line even still about Mardi Gras balls mm. that they were there was a law passed in 1992 to officially desegregate these crews for Mardi Gras that throw balls throughout the year but that there's an informal segregation that's still happening so I thought that was a really important, or I guess it's more meaningful to have someone who's from Louisiana write that because, yeah. you know, it's probably means something different or it comes with a different sense of authority. Yeah. And I think that in the kind of like overall arc that they're trying to build with these two characters, I think they're trying to show that New Orleans is exceptional and it is right in certain ways, but this book, I think, doesn't lose sight of the precarity of this family, right? That a series of decisions made by other people could change their lives forever, right? Um, and even though her going out with her grandfather is wrapped up mostly in class privilege, there's also the fact that, like, Marie Grace is not as likely to meet with violence or to be confused with an enslaved person 
Cecile could, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's she's dressed very, very well. Her family is kind of using all these different ways to try to protect her. But I think that in the kind of historical context they're trying to give us, I think there is kind of a misread here where they say that unlike almost anywhere else in the U.S., people of all colors lived in the same neighborhoods, shopped in the same stores, and attended the same theaters and churches. And I think this is actually a misread in a pretty significant way because I think a lot of the segregation and stratification that happens during Reconstruction has been mapped on to the whole 1800s. On a plantation, that is unfortunately where there are enslaved people. That is people of different backgrounds living together, right? That does not mean that it is good. But we kind of have this thing of like, oh, well, you know, everyone was kind of living these separate lives. Even Cecile, who is relatively privileged, has an upfront seat for what is happening with enslaved people. And that is true in a lot of places. This is not like a hardline segregation like the kind that's going to happen after the end of the Civil War. It's just not. Right. And I'm I'm wondering if even like the sense of danger would feel different for Cecile and her family. Like there's the mm-hmm. uncomfortable exchange in the sweet shop. And there's the moment where she's after the switch saying like, wow, that could have gone differently if my mask had fallen. And there's a moment before that where she says to herself, oh, good, I'm glad I wore my gloves. I remembered my gloves. So that kind of like lackadaisical um, uh, forgetting that you're allowed to do as a privileged person about like changing out your um, silk slippers becomes actually like self-protection. Like, oh, geez, I'm glad I remember this because had I not been wearing my gloves, somebody might be able to tell. And, you know, there's like all of this stuff where it's like, okay, but is there a fear in the family about not having proof of their freeman status on their person at all times? And, you know, is there like an increasing sense of danger? Because we're in 1853 and things are already like being incredibly cracked down yeah. for free black people. So, I mean, it's like the grandpa says, yeah, things are changing, but it kind of seems like things have already changed quite a bit. We also get this line that people um, in the free black community have their own cultural institutions, as you're saying with Mardi Gras. And the line in the peek into the past is, but the surroundings were equally luxurious. Like, so literally making the argument that these things are separate, but equal, which is later obviously going to be overturned in the United States. And I think maybe part of what that is missing is these are not places that are that are cultural institutions for a group by choice. Like they have been set aside separately because black people like Cecile cannot freely move about in white spaces. Like that's the difference. So that kind of argument of like, well, there was this group of ballrooms and this group of this, they're literally making the argument that they are separate but equal, which I think many people, I would hope, would now agree is fundamentally flawed, right? Right. There's a difference between historically black colleges and universities, right? Cultural institutions that are for people of a certain community, right? Versus, well, these people have been kept out of everywhere else, but the fact that there are two of them means that they're equal. That is not what it means. Right. And I think it'd be interesting that one change I would make to this story is actually moving something from peek into the past into the narrative, which is we get this aside in the peek into the past that it's actually illegal for free Black people or any Black person to complain about white people in the newspaper. It's illegal. Mm. Um, I think it would have been interesting if after that exchange, Cecile, not understanding the power dynamics fully, was like, Grandpa, you should write an editorial in the paper about what happened to you. Like if she was so amazed that and and put off by it. And then Grandpa has to explain like, well, actually, I can't. Because then that would kind of really show that there is no there. It's not equal in the society in in your capacity to speak honestly and openly about you know, the power dynamics or the laws to which you're subject. Yeah, I have this dream that we we kind of mentioned towards the end. Um, something that we do learn about her lifetime is that 
there are free people of color and free black girls and women who are making their own publications. And I think there's kind of hint that like this girl would grow up to be part of that. Um, I'm sort of sad to be leaving this book in a way because I know that we're going to jump from here to like finding a baby that they have to rescue. And I'm pretty afraid that Armand and Luke are going to get yellow fever. Like I just kind of feel like that's coming and I'm kind of nervous. Like I, I kind of want to stay in this world where we are playing with the parrot and we don't have to worry about an epidemic yet. Yeah. I mean, cholera is coming and yeah, cholera is, is not fun. Nobody wants to get cholera and it's like, I don't want these beautiful people to get cholera. Like, it's just not. They're going to. I have to tell you. I can't think about this because if you've seen any of the Jon Snow era from the London cholera epidemic around the same time, there was an artist who used to go house to house and literally draw portraits of people dying from cholera. I don't know why he did this, but this person did this and we can share it. They're the most terrifying images, some of them, Mm. that these eyes have seen. Like, it's, like, on a scale of, like, Jesus Christ Superstar Medley Olympic routine. Scary. Well, I will tell you part of why I have this apprehension, and it's because the author of the Marie Grace book and the author of this book developed a relationship and they planned out plot lines and they worked together to develop these characters. And they talked in an American Girl video about how they had a friendship that really grew out of actually doing this project and the respect they have for each other. And the author of the Marie Grace books mentioned that she wanted young people to read about this period of disease and this difficult time. And she says of the epidemic of that period, quote, to see that it's not the end of the world. Might be the end of our world. So I'm nervous. I mean. I'm nervous. I think if if these had been written post-COVID, which I don't think they would be written, um, I will also say like the amount of people who have spoken out and said, why did you only release these characters for a three to four year window? Like this character was back in the vault by 2014. That's we, insane. Like, I feel like we've had seasons of American Idol that felt longer <laughs> than this character was available. Yeah. I mean, it it is stunning to me that these were available for such a brief window of time, especially when it's like, it just feels like it adds insult to injury to Cecile, frankly, mm. because she has to share. She doesn't even get her own six book arc. I'm sorry. Like, I'm not sorry, Marie Grace, but like she does. Neither one of them gets six books of their own. They have to share it. Maybe I'm speaking as a person who had to share birthday parties with my brother who's 11 months older than me. But I'm just saying, like, when you're raised as a twin, sharing isn't always the thing that you want to have happen. So it's like for Cecile and Marie Grace, their stories, I think, could have warranted definitely Cecile's her own six book series. So to have to get an incomplete story and then a very brief window of time in which to share it with people Hmm. is it just feels like she was robbed. We also, like, people brought this up explicitly when American Girl in June of 2020 posted their commitment to racial equality. People replied and talked about these characters. And I found a tweet from that time from a user, Cactus Fruits, and she asked the question, how American are these girls? Did Marie Gardner's loyalty lie with 1852 America or with her friend, Cecile Ray? Um, and I think that's that's maybe um, a just as interesting question to ask of Cecile, who really, I think, much like Josefina, would not understand herself as a person of the United States in the way that others would assume that she should. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Like, how does American Girl reconcile or understand these characters who would not see themselves as American and beyond that, at least with Cecile, the way she talks about um, Americans is, is pretty vicious and rightfully so. So, I mean, Patrick brings that that? out in people. He He brings that out. Patrick and that's what we know. I mean, we just know that. Pat and T, like that's what they bring out in people. And I'm really worried because Cecile has a beautiful widowed aunt and I just feel like he might come knocking on the door. 
Wow. Yeah. She's not interested. Trust me, she's not interested. But you know what? He is a merchant. He is a trader. And if True. he knows they have inherited passive income properties and that they're business he's women, he, he's going to worm his way in. We know that. I mean, we need like Olivia Rodrigo. God, I wish I had thought this through. Like... <laughs> Before I had a praline with you. I don't know. I don't know. That's just, you know, that's there. Wow. Uh, so if people want to talk to you more about Mardi Gras, and I should say, please tell us. That's really, really fascinating. How should people find you? So please get in touch with me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. And Allison, if people want to spitball theories with you about, you know, American Girl of it all, like what's up with Cecile, what's going on with Armand and Uncle Luke is, I believe that's his name. Um, how should they get in touch with you? Yeah, so I'll be running a tribute account to the parrot that is featured wow. in this book. I'll be dropping that handle ASAP. In the meantime, you can find me at Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow the show at A Girls Pod on Twitter. We're on Instagram and Facebook with American Girls Podcast. We do have an active telephone number that goes straight to voicemail. You can find that as well as our P.O. box and everything else on our website. And because folks have asked a few times, um, I'm going through our back catalog of Patreon episodes and just adding some information to our website. So, for example, if you are racking your brain trying to figure out when we talked about Anne Rinaldi, adding that information so you can find it. Excellent. Yes. And hopefully we'll do another in Rinaldi someday. If we can, yeah. If, if we, we can, can handle emotionally it. handle that. Yeah. I might need some counseling before <laughs> then. Um, all right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We so appreciate all of you and everyone who's joined us on Patreon. And we will see you on our next episode. Mm-hmm.